of the Economy Committee. Some members will be attending this morning's meeting via Starleaf and our witnesses will be briefing via Starleaf. The meeting will be broadcast live when open to the public and a recording will be made available on the committee's webpage on the Assembly website, just to remind members to mute their devices when they aren't speaking. So moving on to item number one, which is apologies. We have apologies from Mike Nesbitt and I'm not aware of any others. No, technically we're still apologies for Gary until he's okay. swapped out. So. Okay, thank you. So moving on then to item number two, which is Chair's Business. Um, at page three of your table papers, there's a copy of a response from the ERA Committee to the Dairy Council accepting the invite for the ERA and Economy Committees to attend a virtual visit on Thursday the 8th of July at 1.30pm. So just a note that for the time being, and Peter will be circulating further instructions closer to the time. Once we have our, our joining and, and, and a, a kind of more of an agenda. So moving on then to um, page four of your table papers, there is a copy of the correspondence from the Association of NI Travel Agents to the Minister, which was handed over at the protest um, last or last Wednesday afternoon regarding the delay in the payment of the industry grant award and a call for a return to international travel. So if members are content, we will seek an update from the department on the financial support that is available to travel agents and when payments will be made. And I note that yesterday it was announced that they will be made before the middle of July. So um, that... Hopefully by the time we get a response, Chair, they will have been... Yeah. Disappointing that the uh, First and Deputy First Minister's Office issued that information without answering priority questions to members first. So moving on then to item number or three or two point three, there is an informal meeting. Sorry, we had an informal meeting with the University of Exeter academics on um, their report on energy governance last uh, Thursday, Thursday morning. Yeah. Um, there was a number of members at that meeting. It was a very useful um, meeting with the academics and um, those of us that were present at it thought that it would be useful for those academics to actually brief the committee at some point. And Peter, do you want to maybe speak to as to when we might fit that in? Yeah, we're, we're going to have to look at that for the autumn, Chair. What, what I thought was it might be really timely before we get the analysis of responses to the energy strategy consultation. Normally I would produce a note on this, but it became a much wider discussion about energy types, um, getting into discussion about different kinds of hydrogen, the gas infrastructure and so on. So it was a much wider discussion that really, I think, Chair, from what you had said, would be better to be had with all mm -hmm. members um, and would be useful just coming into that um, energy strategy consultation analysis. Um, so we, we'll try and coordinate with the department on that, but we're probably looking at September, maybe even early October okay. for that. But um, yeah, a lot of useful information, a lot of um, insight um, that we, we maybe weren't aware of before. So. so members are happy enough, we'll get that scheduled in for the early autumn. Yep. Thank you, Chair. So moving on then to item number three, which is our draft minutes. There is a copy of the draft minutes from the meeting held on the 23rd of June at page six of your packs. Are members content that those are an accurate reflection of the meeting? Great. Thank you. Okay, so moving on then to uh, 3.2, there is the draft record of decisions from our meeting on the 23rd of June at page six of your table papers. And Peter, can I just add, I see on the ESF funding yep, department yep. response, um, the minister had indicated that he had written to other ministers about the potential for people to be looking for match funding from their mm -hmm. departments. Did he 
can we ask if they had any responses? That, yeah. um, and also he had mentioned the Justice, Health and Communities Minister, but not the Finance Minister, so it was just if he has corresponded with Same him. Um, and they also suggested that they would apply for Shared Prosperity Fund, which is a bit... Um, yeah. yeah, considering there is no criteria or details or anything the, the, there. So my question is, is the department going to award funding in advance of match funding being secured from other sources? Okay, well, we'll follow up on that, Chair. Right. So other than that, are members content with the, uh, the draft record of decisions from last week? Yes. Okay. Thank you. So moving on then to item number four, which is our briefing from SIA on assessment and awarding of qualifications. There is a clerk's memo at page 14 of your pack. There are the briefing papers from SIA at page 18 of your pack. There is a clerk's memo on the informal meeting with the FE colleges at page 24. A departmental response regarding qu committee queries on the reform of youth training at page 30. An update from the department on the reform of youth training at page 36 and a copy of the progression pathways that was shared with us at page 44 of your packs. So, Tommy, if you bring into the spotlight Margaret Farahar, who is interim CEO of SIA, Sharon Keane, who's business manager of SIA, and David Crosby, program manager at SIA. Chair, it looks... Oh, there we go. There, there, there we go. Okay, there we go. Okay, good morning, everybody. And if I hand over to yourselves to make an opening statement, and then we can bring members in for questions. Okay, thank you, Chair, um, and thank you very much for the opportunity to attend today's uh, Economy Committee meeting. I'm Margaret Farraher, the Interim Chief Exec um, at SIA, and I'm joined today by SIA's Head of Regulation, Sharon King, and Programme Manager, David Crosby. Today, we will provide, as requested, a summary of the different roles of SIA, including as a regulator and provider of qualifications, and cover the number of awarding organisations recognised to operate in Northern Ireland. We will also outline the process that, that has been put in place for the awarding and assessment of qualifications during the pandemic and make reference to some of the current challenges. We have submitted to the committee a, a written briefing on these areas. Due to the time available, I will focus on the key points. Firstly, I'll summarise the role of SIA, the Council for the Curriculum, Examinations and Assessment. SIA was established on the 1st of April 1994 and is an arm's length body of the Department of Education. We are funded and responsible to the Department. Our mission is to enable the full potential of all learners to be achieved and recognised. We do this by placing learners and those that have a concern for their educational and personal development at the forefront of our thinking. SIA has broadly four main functions as set out in the Education NI Order 1998. For the purposes of today, I'm going to summarise these briefly. The first is to conduct examinations and assessments. SIA is responsible for the development and awarding of qualifications. These include GCSEs, GCEs, entry-level qualifications, occupational studies, and a small number of vocational qualifications. In this, we are one of the awarding organisations recognised to provide qualifications in Northern Ireland. The second function is the separate regulatory role to accredit and approve external qualifications offered in Northern Ireland. 
and this is carried out by SEER regulation. I will go into further detail on SEER regulation and its key functions later. SEER's third function is to keep the curriculum and assessment under review, meaning we have responsibility for the curriculum for all children in state-funded schools and those under 19 in further education colleges. We also have several ancillary functions, which include research and development, additional activities that may be directed by the department and our corporate services. Turning then to SEER regulation, within Northern Ireland, there are currently 90 awarding organisations offering general, vocational and technical qualifications. General qualifications are offered by AOs such as AQA, SEER, Pearson, OCR and WJC. VTQs are offered by other awarding organisations such as City and Guilds, NCFE and Active IQ. There are also specialist providers in a diverse range of areas, such as canoeing and horticulture. SEER regulation is an independent function solely responsible for the accreditation and quality assurance of the qualifications offered by awarding organisations in Northern Ireland. SEER regulation's full remit is set out in the Education NI Order 1998, and since 1998, SEER regulation has regulated general qualifications on behalf of the Department of Education. From May 2016, we also became responsible for regulation of vocational and technical qualifications on behalf of the Department for the Economy. In our regulatory role, we work to ensure fairness for all learners, that the qualifications they take are consistent and portable, and that standards are maintained. To support this, we work closely with other regulators, such as Ofqual and Qualifications Wales, to ensure mobility of workers and learners across the UK through the portability of qualifications taken by NI learners and the maintenance of standards. This close cooperation helps mitigate any risk to standards across qualifications and jurisdictions and ensures that awarding organisations across the different jurisdictions are offering examinations that are both consistent and fair. To provide more detail on SEER's role in the processes and structures associated with qualifications and awarding, SEER regulation has five key functions. These are the recognition of awarding organisations, the accreditation of qualifications, compliance and monitoring, carrying out reviews, and providing advice to DE and DFE. I will summarise these five key functions briefly. The first, the recognition of awarding organisations, is the first step an awarding organisation must take if they wish to offer regulated qualifications in Northern Ireland. We regulate the awarding organisations using a set of regulatory requirements as set out in the general conditions of recognition. These conditions protect the integrity of qualifications and ensure that qualifications offered in Northern Ireland are both operated and awarded to the highest standard. We maintain a rigorous application process for any organisation that wishes to offer qualifications in Northern Ireland, ensuring the evidence they submit is clear on how they meet the criteria. Once an awarding organisation is recognised, they can submit their qualifications for accreditation, which is the second key function of SEER regulation. Within this, SEER reviews the specifications 
and specimen assessment materials against published criteria, making sure the qualifications are fit for purpose in Northern Ireland. Another key function of SEER regulation is compliance and monitoring. To do this, we ask all recognised awarding organisations to objectively self-evaluate their levels of compliance against the conditions and submit this annually. If there are any non-compliances, the awarding organisations must provide a detailed action plan setting out how issues will be addressed. This key function helps to maintain the quality of the qualifications and services offered by awarding organisations operating in Northern Ireland and importantly protect centres and learners. The final two key functions of SEER regulation are reviews and advice. We are required by the Department of Education to ensure that SEER awarding organisations general qualifications are equivalent to the comparable qualification standards in other jurisdictions. To protect these standards, SEER regulation carries out reviews of qualifications. SEER regulation must also provide advice and guidance uh, to support DFE and quality assure the development of apprenticeship frameworks and for traineeships, shallow and deep reform. The committee also asked us to address the awarding and assessment processes for qualifications during the pandemic. Following the cancellation of exams and assessments at the start of this year, SEER regulation issued regulatory frameworks to ensure that awarding organisations put in place alternative awarding arrangements that complied with ministerial directions. We work to ensure that the frameworks were similar to those developed by Ofqual and Qualifications Wales. This was done to protect the portability of qualifications in Northern Ireland and ensure fairness and consistency. Throughout this process, communication has been key. In particular, the vast amount of information about the summer 2021 arrangements that were sent from the 90 awarding organisations to centres in Northern Ireland. To assist this, we set up a dedicated area for communications on the SEER website. We also work regularly with centre representatives and DFE to ensure timely communications from all awarding organisations. We have been engaging with the 90 awarding organisations to help find solutions to the various challenges faced by centres. It is important that the integrity, reliability and validity of qualifications are maintained, but also that there is recognition of the ongoing challenges faced by learners and centres over the past year. This summer, we want to ensure that as many learners as possible can receive their awards and we will continue our work with DFE and the awarding organisations to support this. As the issue of results approaches, we will continue to monitor the awarding organisation's progress and ensure that the departments are continually briefed. Turning to arrangements for 2022, as members will be aware, the Education Minister made a statement to the Assembly in May outlining the planned return to public examinations and reductions in assessment across the range of SEER general qualifications. For vocational qualifications, SEER regulation is working with Ofqual and Qualification Wales to ensure that adaptations for the forthcoming academic year are introduced and proportionate to those established for general qualifications. 
The final area I will address briefly to the committee today are the forthcoming challenges and opportunities within the vocational landscape in Northern Ireland. The introduction of T-levels in England and the proposed defunding of a wide range of vocational qualifications other than T-levels could result in the withdrawal of support for existing qualifications used in Northern Ireland. The potential impact of this change for the Northern Ireland market is not only to challenge how vocational education and qualifications will be structured, but also how SEA regulation can help to ensure that colleges and learners have access to portable qualifications for the future. The recently launched 10X economic strategy consultation sets several challenges which are relevant to SEA's work. This includes addressing skills imbalances, creating a culture of lifelong learning and enhancing digital skills. These will require the further development of vocational qualifications and the promotion of vocational pathways to support the Northern Ireland economy. In light of the ongoing developments and policy divergence in England and Wales, we are continuing to work with DfE to consider how vocational qualifications can best be provided in the future. Part of this work includes the DfE-sponsored Future of Vocational Qualifications in NI project. Stakeholder engagement is of paramount importance in this work. Feedback from centres has informed thinking on possible ways forward. I would like to thank all NI centres for the contributions to this work and for their patience in managing alternative arrangements over the last 18 months. Thank you, Chair, for your patience, and we will be happy to respond to any questions or comments. Yep, thank you very much for that. Um, it's a useful overview for us. And um, skills has been a priority for the committee since uh, since the, the inception of this um, committee last <coughs> January. And obviously, there have been significant issues over the course of the past year and a half with, um, with the pandemic and, and now hopefully coming out the other end. Um, there were, and I'm sure members will want to, to reflect around the, the awarding and the, the assessment in respect of um, last year and then this, this coming academic year as well. Um, there's a few things that I just wanted to pick up on and it's kind of where you finished there around the, uh, the future of vocational qualifications, the report that you referenced. Um, and I think that that report has been submitted to DFE, but we haven't seen any outworking of it yet. So I was just wondering when that might be shared with ourselves and with the, the colleges, I think they referred to not having been shared with them as well. Um, and I guess just the role that you see for the colleges and other providers here in the development of the new, as you have referred to there, the need for further vocational qualifications. Is there a specific role that you feel that colleges and providers here can provide in relation to that um, over and above what alternative providers, perhaps in England or Wales or, or otherwhere, may be um, doing in, in respect of that? I guess some of the feedback that we get as a committee is that um, those qualifications being designed and developed here in the north for our young people and, and I guess people of all ages, in fact, um, would be much more appropriate rather than relying on other awarding organisations. So I'd be keen to get your views around that. 
Yes, okay. Thank you, Chair. Um, so I think in, in terms of the timing of release of the report, um, we, we can discuss that with DFE. Um, I think it's really uh, for them to decide now when the report can be released. Uh, I also believe that they want to do some further work. So I think um, issues around publication have, have possibly been due to wanting to do a bit of additional research, um, but I'm sure they intend to share it uh, soon and we can certainly follow that up with them and report back. Um, in terms of the role of colleges in, in shaping the future agenda, I think you're absolutely right that colleges do have uh, a very important role to play. Uh, in the future vocational uh, technical qualification strategy. Um, you know, they're very much, um, you know, on the ground, um, understand learners' needs, um, are close to the uh, economy issues, um, and their contributions to the reports that SEA regulation have produced on behalf of DFE um, have been really valuable, and, and we very much appreciate um, their ideas. Uh, I also know just from my initial conversations with um, FE colleges, I've, I've kind of started to, to try and meet as many people in the sector as I can. You know, I know they are very committed to working with SEA and DFE on, on the way forward. I think everybody has that common goal um, and wants to ensure that we do have vocational and te technical qualifications that are fit for purpose, that do meet the needs of NI learners and the needs of the NI economy. Okay, um, thanks for that. I guess we will be very keen to see how that progresses um, over the coming months. Um, certainly we get the, the feedback that colleges would like to be very involved in the, the process of the development of, of qualifications and feel that they, they have a lot to offer in, in terms of the development, in terms of being able to respond um, and to be flexible around the type of qualifications that are being developed to, to meet the needs of, of young people and, and the economy. And, and yet just a, a question in relation to the role of SIA as a regulator and how effective you feel that you have been able to be over the course of the last year in respect of um, awarding organisations in England and Wales where they were putting in place arrangements for assessment and awarding of qualifications. Um, how do you think that that process uh, worked? Um, do you think it was effective or were there difficulties in terms of being able to um, have the type of oversight that you would like to be able to have in relation to those qualifications? Yeah, okay, thank you, Chair. That's a really good um, question. I mean, it's been a, an incredibly difficult uh, 18 months, I think, for everybody involved in providing qualifications um, and delivering them. Um, you know, we've never seen this level of disruption, I think, in the history of, of examinations taking place. Um, I, think, I think there are particular challenges as well with vocational and, and technical qualifications. You know, there's a, a wide variety of qualifications offered, and, and that's for a very good reason. Um, but you know, there are, I suppose, also particular challenges in um, conducting assessments, um, which tend to be practical, ensuring that those are conducted safely. Um, you know, this year with the challenges that COVID-19 brought, um, you know, there were, were lots of issues in terms of delivery and safe delivery. Um, so all of that has been very challenging, I think, in particular for the vocational and technical qualifications um, that we offer here in Northern Ireland. 
Um, I would say though, uh, you, you know, colleagues in SEER regulation, um, and I think um, through the feedback that we receive with centres, um, awarding organisations who are based in England have absolutely tried, you know, their utmost to deliver um, despite the very challenging circumstances. Um, I think, you know, again, we've all wanted to ensure um, that as much as is possible, learners who are conducting assessments had a smooth experience. Um, and whilst it was very difficult, I think everybody did, you know, absolutely try their best to ensure that the process ran smoothly. Um, I think we've learned a lot of lessons from last year. Um, you know, and maybe that's easy, you know, based on uh, the experience of last year. But I know that certainly we've been able to work and agree timeframes um, a lot more um, quickly than we had last year with awarding organisations based in England. So I, I hope that provides some reassurance. David, did you want to come in? Sure, just, yeah. just perhaps I had, I mean, the, the role of the regulator is very much within the uh, the grounds of portability, comparability of the qualities that are taken across uh, England and Northern Ireland. Um, but we have had good opportunity through this year to work very closely with those awarding organisations to uh, come up with NI-only bespoke solutions to ensure that um, the particular uh, perhaps uh, lockdown conditions here, the PHA restrictions, um, uh, that were different in England, that we were able to accommodate those within the delivery of those qualifications uh, for the learning base. Um, so that was very much an NI-only aspect of, of their activities here. Okay, thanks for that. And uh, that's useful feedback together and, and um, to get, and we will we'll take that on board in terms of our own um, deliberations around this. But you've, you've raised a point there, David, around the... Uh, portability of qualifications that I wanted to touch on in relation to um, to Brexit and the, the mutual recognition of qualifications. Obviously, we know there are specific issues around um, professional qualifications, but just qualifications in general and how we continue to be able to apply the European framework of qualifications. Is that work that is being looked at by yourselves or how is that um, being addressed? Yeah, do you, do you want to come and do Sure, so um, we do operate across the common framework with England and Wales, uh, and we also have uh, a qualifications cross-boundary system uh, that involves um, Ireland, Scotland as well. Uh, we've also been um, the, the national uh, point of contact for the European qualifications framework, and so SEA uh, regulations very much involved in ensuring that uh, there is portability of qualifications across the jurisdictions. And is that something that will that you will continue to apply regardless, or, or do you see any barriers emerging there over time? Um, so, yeah, I don't, I don't think we do, but I'll, I'll let David respond. Okay, sure. So, uh, no, the structures are in place and the structures will continue to ensure that um, that, that can work across the five countries, including Ireland and across the European Qualifications Framework, uh, we do have a continuing role in that. Okay, no thanks for that. Um, Peter, you're next up. Okay, thank you. I don't know whether, in terms of qualifications, I should declare an interest. I suppose um, Margaret mentioned about the last 18 months being challenging in that regard, and I suspect anybody who's been involved with qualifications at various stages has woken up with a cold sweat uh, at various at various points, not, not least myself in that, in that regard. Um, 
I suppose just in terms of a few points, just uh, again, taking on the, the qualifications, I echo I suppose maybe some of the remarks of the chair. I think it'd be very useful as we're looking, I know that you've got the, um, the qualifications project in terms of vo um, vocational qualifications. I think the more information we can get on both timeframes and also next steps that you have with that, I think that would be helpful in, in that regard as we, we try and plot this out. Uh, I suppose just two issues I want to probe um, in relation to, because I suppose, um, I suppose in qualifications where we're maybe in a slightly unusual position compared to some other jurisdictions is that largely speaking, if you're in England or Wales or the Republic, uh, qualifications, for instance, largely speaking, fall within the one department, whereas um, both further and higher education within the economy here, and in terms of qualifications, there's a level of um, straddling, I suppose, that SIA has to do as well, that uh, specifically while probably the majority of their work, or the vast majority of your work, and you are an arm's length body of DE, would be with education, there's obviously a large percentage that's fall within the, the voluntary qualifications um, side of things. Uh, and similarly, it, it strikes me that there is also the slightly unusual position that, that comparing voluntary qualifications with, um, we call it more sort of directly academic qualifications, um, your position as provider is quite different in terms of those two, in that um, at least as regards the um, academic qualifications, overwhelmingly um, you dominate the market here in terms of that you're about eighty percent of the uh, of the A levels, about what ninety six, ninety seven percent of of GCSEs. But as regards to the, uh, the the vocational qualifications, you've effectively got a small foothold it, and you're largely speaking regulating what's happening elsewhere. Appreciate maybe a long long winded introduction. Uh, I suppose two things I want to, to probe. You've mentioned obviously in terms of the direction of travel um, in England. Um, particularly with the, the T-level side of things and about a policy divergence between what's happening here and what's happening elsewhere. Um, I just wonder if you can give us some thoughts in terms of the work that's ongoing um, because you know, we also want to make sure, obviously, that whatever is here is fit for purpose in Northern Ireland. But there is, with qualifications, a really overriding need to ensure that, that our students are not disadvantaged compared to any jurisdiction, that there is portability, comparability, and even in terms of the standards that are set, if either we create within any qualifications a situation where it is, on the one hand, harder for any of our students to get a particular qualification, then that disadvantages them. Uh, the flip side, which maybe is less talked about, if, if we find a, a system which means that our qualifications are seen as easier as other jurisdictions, then there's a danger when either universities or employers are looking at these things. They effectively write off, at least in a close situation, well, that qualification from Northern Ireland is not as good as such and such organisation. So I, I wonder, um, as we're moving towards uh, potentially with what's happening elsewhere, potential greater levels of divergence, how you square that off with the, uh, the need to ensure that there's ongoing portability and comparability that, that, so our students are not at a disadvantage, be the first question. Yeah, OK. Um, thanks, Peter. And obviously, there was, uh, you know, you covered quite a lot of interesting points there. So um, I think to ensure ongoing portability and comparability, um, it, it's really important to think about all those different functions that uh, SEA regulation is responsible for. Uh, so ensuring that any new qualifications um, are offered by a recognised awarding organisation, who can ensure that they can comply 
um, with the, the general conditions which are put in place to ensure that there are high standards of delivery. Um, I also think in terms of uh, designing new qualifications, it's important to be clear about um, exercises that can demonstrate that they are credible and that they do uh, compare well with qualifications of a similar level that might be offered in other jurisdictions. So I think it's important to think about how those exercises will be managed um, right at the beginning. Um, and, and I think, you know, through our positive relationships uh, with other regulators um, and other bodies responsible for looking at things like international qualification comparisons, uh, you know, there's a body called NARIC, for example. It's about understanding the processes that they go through and exercises that we can conduct together um, to demonstrate that qualifications that are offered in Northern Ireland are credible and that they are of an equivalent standard and are fit for purpose. As part of that, Margaret, also, is there, when we're looking at this, um, are we looking at ensuring that we have systems that there can be pretty easy read across? Because it's not necessarily about doing something which is identical with what, what's happening elsewhere. And I can think back to, um, for example, whenever some of the changes were made on the, the non-vocational qualifications that we, you know, we didn't adopt, for instance, the number system that was there in England, but we had something which meant that whenever we were getting qualifications here, you know, employers and others could have a very direct read across between what award was here and what award was elsewhere so that they could really compare people on a level playing field. Yeah, I think that's right, Peter. I mean, we've got the, you know, the level framework, um, which kind of sets out at a high level the knowledge, understanding and skills that you would expect to see um, at the different levels within that framework. Um, and then it's about being clear about the criteria um, and then having exercises that can demonstrate comparability and portability. So, you, you know, you can be different, but it is important to be clear about where there are similarities and, um, you know, to, you know, be able to demonstrate that standards are consistent uh, across different qualification types is really important. Did, David, did you want to come in there? Thank you. Um, I, I think we're, we are talking about all the uh, formative quality assurance ranges we do have in place to ensure that portability is, is part of um, our general conditions and it is part of our work with regulators and with other countries. I would think in addition to that, uh, we also have a strong communication function and we do deal with uh, employer groups, uh, with UCAS and with others, ensure that not only are we convinced that those uh, qualifications are portable, but those groups are convinced and understand uh, how Northern Ireland qualifications sit uh, along with the mix of the other qualifications that we use. Yeah, the other point just I wanted to, to probe, and maybe more seek a reassurance, uh, I suppose one of the accusations, sometimes a level of merit that, that's thrown at us in broader bit of government in Northern Ireland, is the, the, the tendency for different sectors to work a little bit in a silo um, type position on it. Um, and you've mentioned, I think, on a number of occasions with the um, the work that's going on to, to look at the future of vocational qualifications in the knowledge. You've mentioned the FE colleges, which are obviously critical to that and having, I think, uh, it is also appropriate if there's as much as possible a level of co-design. But I'm conscious of the fact that, that uh, there is often, I think, a mis it's a, a, at best a generalisation, to certain extent a misconception, which tends to see post-primary schools delivering non-vocational non qualifications, the, the broadly academic qualifications, and FE colleges delivering the um, vocational qualifications. And obviously there's, there's a reason to read across 
in both in the post-primary schools will often have an important role, particularly as regards to their students, <coughs> vocational qualifications, and similarly there'll be various um, academic qualifications that the FE colleges will do. So there is a sort of an enmeshing of the two. So I suppose I'm just seeking reassurance that in terms of the stakeholder engagement and the co-design, well obviously at practitioner level, because the vast majority of vocational qualifications will come through FE colleges, that they will, if you like, be the, probably the lead organisation. But we're also taking into account very strongly the, the views of stakeholders within um, the um, secondary level education as well, where obviously there's, there's that level of, of reading course, because quite often students will do combinations of both. They'll do things in, in their own school, they'll do something uh, in the FE colleges, etc., etc. Yes, okay, thank you, Peter. Yeah, I think um, just, just to confirm, you know, I think you're absolutely right. You know, the FE sector are absolutely key in terms of shaping the future char char um, strategy and would be key to co-design. Um, but uh, you're, you're right also in that, you know, schools also do provide uh, applied learning uh, qualification opportunities and some vocational qualifications. You're probably aware that, that DE and DFE have a joint programme, the 14 to 19 yeah. strategy, which is looking at um, you know, ensuring both parts of the sector are involved in that future shaping of the qualifications that we might have in the vocation, vocational and technical and, qualifications. And Martin, Martin, just, just on that, in terms of the project work that we're doing specifically on qualifications, presumably that is feeding into the 14 to 19 because you know, we wouldn't want effectively something almost to be going seen as a, a quasi-solo run that, that doesn't fit in with the wider context of, of where we see uh, that particular piece of work? You, no, you're absolutely right. It, it is feeding into it, but I, I think, you know, your point is well made that we all need to ensure that it continues um, to be prominent on the agenda. As there's a, you know, there's a lot to do, I think, on the VTQ side in terms of, you know, what, what is best for Northern Ireland in the future. And it's important to, you know, to have a coherent framework so that all centres in Northern Ireland, whether they're schools or colleges, understand and feel part of the future direction. Okay. Thank you. Thank you. Keith. Okay, thank you, Chair. Thanks, Margaret, Sharon and David. Just, just to pick up on what the Chair spoke about and, and briefly, um, Peter, just unclear on that uh, future of vocational qualifications in Northern Ireland project. Where is that at on timeline? Have you a report about to produce? Are you, are you waiting more feedback? I'm just unclear where exactly that sits on a timeline point of view and what you're currently doing with that. Yeah, okay. Well, if I, I start off and I, I might bring in David. So um, uh, the, the latest report was uh, sent into DFE in January. Um, and I understand that colleagues are considering that now and thinking about whether additional research is required. Uh, we have uh, some workshops planned with DFE to, to action plan, if you like, what needs to come out of that. Um, through my conversations with um, the FE sector in particular, I know they are also keen to have um, timeframes associated with that work. So uh, we will work with DFE um, and, and other key stakeholders to ensure that work does progress, that there is an action plan. But I think with regard to the very first question uh, from the chair about you know, the sharing of that report, I think we need to go back to, to DFE and, and understand their plans. But David, I don't know if you wanted to add anything. Um, just on, on the, the, the phase two report was 
was uh, submitted to DFB in January, uh, and there has been then some supplementary work uh, that has happened to that uh, because of the impact of COVID and what's happened over the last uh, 16 months. But we, we are clear and on the direction now that there's immediate mitigation work that needs to be done, and that is underway, and be sure that there's no disruption to qualifications in Northern Ireland and that our learners can progress with the qualifications. Uh, the next steps then is something that we're working with the EFE now at pace because we, we realise the changes that are happening elsewhere um, and, and of what we need to meet the needs of Northern Ireland. And that, that is very much taken on board all of those within 14 to 19, indeed then all of those uh, from, from 19 plus as well, uh, to ensure that there are um, a range of suitable qualifications that are easily understood uh, and can support progression pathways. Okay, thank you. I have a couple of other just quick questions. Uh, just on, on your on budget and staffing, what uh, what does CIA have in the line of budget approximately and staffing? Um, so our, our budget is circa thirty million a year and um, about three hundred and twenty staff. Okay. And then final question, May Chair. Um, in our little brief here, you've uh, indicated about advice. So you're offering advice to and guidance to the Department of Education, Department for Economy, on apprenticeships. Give me a wee bit more on that. What what advice are you giving to the Department for Economy on apprenticeships? You know, and how far does that go? And is it guidance? Is it advice? Is it direction? What is it? Yeah, I'll hand over to David. Sure. Yeah. Yeah, so um, the new apprenticeship development are very much founded on uh, employer engagement through sector partnerships. Uh, See, so have a role with every sector partnership in quality assuring the qualifications are chosen for those frameworks and how the frameworks are put together uh, for, for the learners to entertain those apprenticeships. Uh, you may have heard in, in our introductory uh, remarks um, the shallow and deep performing traineeships, and you'll be aware of recent announcements on the funding of, uh, for those traineeships in, in three FE colleges. And we're very much involved in every single one of those. There's 33 uh, of the traineeships we've been involved in. And there are two pilot deep performance, which are, we're now involved with, and we work very closely um, linked to previous questions uh, with FE colleges to ensure that uh, we, we have a role and we have an influence in all of those areas. Okay, thank you. Thanks, Chair. Thank you. Um, can we bring John into the spotlight, please? Uh, thank you, Chair, and thank you for the presentation thus far. Um, I've never understood why, but I do understand why we have many providers because we have a market economy in terms of our qualifications, which I think is a huge mistake. I think it would be better to have a, a state provider of qualifications and in my opinion then it would be much more easier managed and also quality of those qualifications would be much better uh, managed as well as the flexibility to respond to the needs of industry would be better managed. Have you any views on how we should proceed forward in terms of how, how and who provides uh, qualifications? Uh, okay, thank you, John. If I start off, um, I think that's exactly exactly the issues that the Future of Qualifications in Northern Ireland project is exploring. Um, and I think, you know, having you know discussed some of the points yesterday uh, with an FBE principal, you know, I think we all recognise that 
at the moment, you know, there are benefits with, with having the wide range of awarding organisations uh, that operate in Northern Ireland because of those very specialist uh, and niche qualifications that are offered. And, and we were talking specifically about, you know, qualifications in uh, in becoming a farrier. Um, so I think, I think it's, you know, it is really challenging, I think, to think of one state body that could provide all qualifications, but there are, um, you know, options and models within within that theme. Um, so the NI uh, Future Qualifications Project is, is looking at modes of delivery whereby perhaps um, you could have a mixed economy, you know, you could have uh, a state body which also works with a range of awarding organisations that provides those specialist and niche qualifications. And, um, you know, I think it's important in taking that work forward that we continue to get the views of centres who are delivering those qualifications uh, to understand what they think would meet the needs of their learners, as well as the needs of employers to ensure that uh, we don't have any gaps in provision. David, did you want to say sure. anything else on that point? Thank you. And um, I, I think we, we need to have uh, a system which can be responsive uh, to what industry needs are, indeed what uh, Northern Ireland economy and society are. Uh, for the qualifications that are being taken. Uh, through our research, we, we have very much found that um, there are strengths in um, the state-sponsored awarding function um, of, of the vocational qualifications uh, in combination with um, the very specialist and bespoke qualifications that are needed to be taken. Um, and that would certainly be the, the advice that we would be putting around uh, future vocational qualifications. Uh, well, then in terms of regulatory powers, so at the moment there's around 90 awarding organisations. Uh, well, what oversight have you of those uh, awarding organisations? Um, shall I start, David, and, and then you can come in? I mean, we, um, I suppose we use those five functions uh, that I described uh, to ensure that the awarding organisations that are, are permitted to offer qualifications in, in Northern Ireland are fit for purpose and are operating at the highest standards. So we've got the general conditions, we then have our monitoring and compliance activities uh, and, and the ability to conduct reviews. Did you want to say anything else, David, on that point? Yeah, sure. I, I think you know, just to, to acknowledge that within that 90, there is a smaller growing NI-only awarding organisation as well that would be very responsive to uh, the Northern Ireland market. Uh, but for all 90, uh, awarding organisations, we do have annual monitoring compliance activities and um, again with our general conditions to ensure that they are operating effectively and efficiently but in a responsive way uh, to the needs of providers and the economy here. Is it not akin to trying to hurt chickens? These are one body that you're the regulatory body trying to look after and ensure that 90 awarding bodies or roughly 90 awarding bodies are properly carrying out their functions. And it seems to me that that is a huge task for yourselves to carry out, and in many ways, an unnecessary task. <laughs> it goes back to my point uh, in terms of the number of awarding bodies we have. Uh, we have a system set up to look after another system, uh, which seems to me is quite unwieldy. But in, in terms of uh, qualifications, and on the 9th of June, the, the committee was told that uh, 
there was a substantial decrease in the number of level one vocational qualifications awarded during the, the pandemic. How, how did this happen and, and why was it allowed to happen? Okay, thanks very much. In, in terms of um, uh, changes in the number of level one qualifications, uh, David, I don't know if, if you've got any information on that. Okay, uh, so our big emphasis during the pandemic was uh, the DFD policy for level two and level three qualifications uh, to ensure that the progression pathways for those learners were secure. Um, we did obviously achieve a, a good qualifications in comparison to previous years. Uh, level one qualifications tend to be internally assessed. And with internal assessment, there are particular challenges for those providers delivering the qualifications. Uh, we have initiated the project with DFE to ensure that we're picking up on all the learners who didn't achieve their qualifications last year due to the pandemic um, and look at any retrospective work that can be done and also any work for 21-22 that can be undertaken as well. David, you broke up on me a bit there, but I'll, I'll take a look at the Hansard of, of the committee meeting, and if there's anything I need to come back to, you come back to your writing. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks. Um, I haven't got any other members coming in for questions, but if I could just ask um, your view on the impact of, I guess it would be defunding from off-qual, from awarding organisations towards T-levels, how do you think that might actually impact on the awarding organisation's ability to continue to provide qualifications? Uh, and all, uh, well, sorry. Yes. Sorry, yeah, if I, if I start and then David might want to come in. Um, I mean, I do think, you know, there is a commitment um, and uh, a lot of goodwill in terms of all the awarding organisations that operate in, in Northern Ireland um, to continue operating here. But I do think um, it really emphasises the importance of that project, you know, the, the future of vocational qualifications in Northern Ireland. You know, I think we do need to um progress that work you know at pace so that we do have a clear understanding as to how uh, the market might change uh, whether or not there there is a risk of any gaps whether or not we need to uh, have early discussions with awarding organizations to ensure uh, that they continue to offer qualifications uh, that we might need in northern ireland um, whilst we uh, see that project through to its conclusion um, so I think it's a really important project and uh, that's why we're really keen, I think, to, you know, ensure, um, you know, COVID pandemic aside, that we keep the work going as quickly as possible on that project. And I, and I get the sense that other stakeholders are also keen to ensure things progress quickly. Sorry, did David want to come in now? Okay. Sure. So, so just uh, in addition to that, uh, we, we do have the Future Vocational Qualifications Project, but we also uh, very actively risk manage the, uh, any uh, sort of impact that there is to market provision of qualifications here in Northern Ireland. And at the moment, there are two main strands to that work. Uh, one is the mitigation to ensure that uh, there is no disruption to the qualification provision. Uh, you mentioned the uh, level three. 
uh, funding issues and, uh, elsewhere and have the impact that might have here. Uh, so we actually we do work with Northern Ireland-based supporting organisations and indeed others that are still providing here um, to ensure that there isn't a disruption there in the, the short-term mitigations. The future of vocational qualifications perhaps more medium to long-term uh, thinking of what's happening there. But we're very active within the area of ensuring that um, national occupational standards are up to date and that they do influence uh, the qualifications that are available in Northern Ireland and ensure again that there's no disruption there. Okay. No, that, that's useful and it has been really useful to hear your, your views around that project. That is something that we're very um, conscious of as well and that we have heard from um, stakeholders about and that we'll be keen to continue to engage with the department. Um, so we'll follow up with them directly on that um, and um, all of the other issues that have been discussed. So thanks for your time this morning. It has been a really useful session for us and um, I'm sure be in touch. Okay. Okay. Thank you. Thank you. Peter, do we need to agree any? Chair, just if just coming out of the questions members have asked, if we uh, seek an update from the department on where the the report that went to them in January is actually sitting now, um, see, we're talking about additional work that was being done, additional research, and so on. So it would be useful to get an idea of where that all sits. Uh, members had also talked about what timeframes we're talking about and next mm -hmm. steps. Um, just workshops as well. Yeah, they, there, there was talk of various other bits and pieces of work that we, we don't really know what the time scale is, but I was getting the overwhelming feeling that they really want to push this on quickly. Um, that, that impact of um, T-levels, um, I, I suspect, can't be understated. Um, if that's where the direction of travel is and we're looking for something different, then we, we may have to be looking at providing it locally because um, it, it may simply not be provided by the, the awarding bodies uh, in England or Wales who don't really rely on Northern Ireland from, from what has been said as a significant part of their market. Um, so it, it does look as though the whole thing is, is getting a lot more um, urgent. So if we, if we follow up, Chair, if members are, are in agreement that we follow up yes. on time scales, where everything's sitting, what further work is being done. So, Chair, just in relation to that as well, um, if, if there isn't going to be this divergence with... England doing, say, um, the T-levels and awarding organisations effectively. Uh, I think there's always a danger, given the, the size of, of Northern Ireland, that awarding organisations may simply see if there's two different systems, frankly, is it, is it worthwhile being near Northern Ireland? We're not a big enough market. But I suppose if we're going maybe a slightly different route ourselves, um, also maybe pressing with the department, um, what... What are the sort of the uh, the bridging arrangements? Because there presumably will be a point at which a lot of things are being provided simply by awarding organisations across the water, and there may be then a point at which there is something that is a little bit more sort of locally focused. But there's always a danger then for particular sets of learners: are you going to get a bit of a gap between one being ready and the other? So that you know, I suppose it's, it's what the arrangements are to make sure that there's a at least sort of a continuity of flow for for people. Sure, we can follow up on all that. Um, yep. I think there certainly seems to be a level of urgency around it. Okay, members, um, unless anybody has anything to add, we'll move on. Okay. Sure. Thank you. So then moving on to item number five, which is matters arising. There's a number of items under this. So at page 46 of your pack, there is a response from the Minister regarding our briefing from the HATS network. 
The Minister recommends that officials brief the Committee on the Skills Strategy following the close of the consultation after summer recess. So are members content that we would seek a briefing um, in September in relation to that? Great. Thank you. Thank you. <clears throat> Moving on then, page 47, there's a departmental response to the Committee's request for further information on EU exit frontier workers and the EU settlement scheme. Um, the response details interventions led by the Department to raise awareness of both schemes. And Peter, just given that they close today, it might be useful to put out on the committee's social media some reminders. Sure, I've also seen that. A, a very similar response has come in to us today from the executive office as well, um, um, but it doesn't say anything different. So the. Um, the response highlights that from the 1st of July 2021, EU, EEA and Swiss nationals will need to hold a valid frontier worker permit as well as a valid passport or national identity card to enter the UK as a frontier worker. Irish citizens do not need anything to continue working in the UK from the 1st of January 2021, but may apply for a permit if they wish. UK nationals who are frontier workers can continue to work in the south under the protections offered by the common travel area arrangements. On the 1st of April 2021, the Home Office published guidance on how it will deal with late applications to the EU settlement scheme. People can apply after the 30th of June, but they must have reasonable grounds to apply. The guidance also suggests that there will be flexibility, at least initially after the deadline for those applying late, but who don't have an obvious basis for their late application. The response also outlines that the reasonable grounds are unlimited. There's no uh, I, I kind think of... It's, yeah, it seemed to be a suggestion that if the, the grounds were, were anyway reasonable, that that would be considered. Also, Chair, we're aware that there is a significant backlog, but as long as the application is already registered there's no issue about it That's being right. processed after the deadline so that i know that was a worry um that if things weren't processed before the deadline people were worried that they wouldn't get the settled status but it's simply a case if they will still be processed and there's no immediate action uh including those who apply after the deadline um i think there's an initial grace period and then they're looking at these reasonable grounds um it does appear that they're trying to build in as much flexibility as possible the only uh, concern I would have in relation to it is where it stays. The guidance states that an EU EEA or Swiss citizen is encountered by an immigration officer um, and if it appears they fall within the scope of the scheme, they should be issued with a written notice. Are they going to go looking for people within certain, you know, within our ethnic minority communities? Because that would be discriminatory we, in some respects. We respect. don't get that impression. Um, I think that's more likely to happen elsewhere, um, where there is more evidence of people just simply not seeking to apply, you know, communities that are um, seeking to remain under the radar, if that makes sense. Can we maybe seek some reassurances yeah. around yeah, we that will do, Chair. particular point? Chair, there, uh, just on that issue, there was an uh, in-depth um, Radio 4 interview yesterday with one of the junior ministers in the Home Office. And when pressed uh, to suggest that the uh, various agencies would not be aggressive, the, the minister wouldn't answer that question. He kept being asked, were they going to take up an approach in terms of um, encouraging people, getting people into the system and all of that. Um, 
and, and how individuals will be treated. Remember, from midnight tonight, benefits cease, um, and all other advantages and privileges that have been extended prior to and as a result of freedom of movement um, ends if you're not registered. Yeah, and I'm, I'm sure none of us would have particular faith in, in the, the, the British Home Office not going after people with their um, their track record. So if we could maybe just seek some. Chair, there was a figure. Um, was it, it was reported in the media a few weeks ago that there were 1.6 million more people than were anticipated that were actually resident from the EU across yes. the UK, um, which must surely have an impact too on processing times. I would have mm. thought it. You know. You create a system with an estimate of how many people it's actually going to involve, and then when you suddenly find there's 1.6 million more, so that would would suggest that there does need to be a level of of care and flexibility with this. Yeah. We'll follow up, Chair, and, and see what's happening. Okay, Chair, can I just uh, come in there? Yes, go ahead. I understand that there is a considerable backlog um, in relation to the processing of some of the applications. So um, it would be just inhumane if, if some of the the um, you know support for for our citizens that have been living here and working here and contributing here for for many years uh, to be stopped just because of uh, the process itself. Um, I, I think it would be um, it would be uh, incumbent upon us to to write to the the the, the office uh, and ask that uh, leniency would be given because it's all very it's all very soft and bubbly here. You know that there there's going to be flexibilities, but there's actually nothing in writing to say how long those flexibilities are going to last. Uh, uh, and you know, will it be light touch for the first six months, for example, uh, to give people time to get processed uh, and and to catch. Uh, the late application so i think that we should write and ask for leniency and uh you know uh, flexibility within the process itself i hear at the labor party as well is asking for an extension um t today and i think that's something that we should all be asking for actually for uh, you know that it doesn't come down uh, and end tonight at midnight um because uh there there will be a lot of people that is out of the system as peter says 1.6 more uh, EU nationals have been identified than thought that they were actually here in the in the UK. Chair, if it's, if it's helpful, what, what I would suggest is that we, we already have open channels with the Home Office, so if we write to make sure there are no cliff edges, that they, they, they've acknowledged in the media uh, a backlog, I think, of up to eight weeks and have said that they, they will be cognizant of that in terms of uh, anyone in the in the system won't um, encounter any cliff edge around benefits or anything like that, but it would be useful to get that with clarity in writing. So if members are content, we write to the Home Office to seek that clarity. Yes, yep. thank, thank you. you. Okay. Sorry, Chair. Go ahead, Chair. Okay, here's my point. Uh, the, the, the benefits issues all is, is vitally important, but it's also worth noting that those facing the cliff edge work in our health service, work in our schools, uh, are out working in industry, are out working in agriculture. So, you know, I don't want the impression going out that people from the EU are here on benefits. Uh, they're here holding this society together in many instances. Yeah. Thanks, John. Okay, so we'll move on then to 5.3, which is at page 49 of your pack. There's the departmental response uh, regarding our request for further detail on the role of Invest NI in um, FTC and around the changes to accounting which have been made or which have made FTC less attractive. 
So Invest NI has used FTC to part fund its access to finance suite of funds, which provide loan and equity finance to high growth potential um, SMEs in their startup and development phases. It has used FTC for the Agri-Food Loan Scheme for the Sustainable Utilisation of Poultry Litter Scheme and the, e or the COVID-19 Equity Investment Fund. The Finance Minister wrote to the Executive colleagues in September 2021 suggesting implementing structural change to maximise the use of FTC across the public sector. As part of this review, DFE asked DOF to consider a mechanism to allow the risk that FTC places on departments' resource Dell to be managed centrally. This would allow the risk to departments' resource Dell budget introduced by IFRS 9 to be managed centrally, minimising the risk and encouraging the use of FTC going forward. So that was some queries that members had raised last week with the budget, or was it last week? The January monitoring <coughs> budget. And I assume that's September 2020. Yes, it should have been September 2020. Sorry, Chair, 21 hasn't happened yet. I suppose on the simplest level, um, rather than annually managed expenditure, it's switched to resource Dell, which is much easier to control centrally and therefore can be managed at the centre rather than um, you know departments having to manage it as well, and themselves specifically. Okay, so members happy to note? Yep. So moving on then, 5.4, page 51 of your pack, there's a response from the Education Minister regarding tourism skills. The Minister welcomes our support for ongoing cooperation between economy and education departments. The Minister states that the curriculum should be diverse to meet the needs, to meet the reach of young people's skills, abilities and interests while also being relevant to the needs of the economy. So that's to note at this stage and a joint briefing with the Education Committee regarding the 14 to 19 strategy will be sought again in September. Yes, Chair Members will recall that we, we went ahead on our own after we, we tried last year and when COVID intervened and so on. Um, but the Education Committee have been in touch to say that they're, they're looking at um, wanting to go forward as a joint briefing just to update. Obviously, that'll be um, relevant to a lot of other things that have happened within that department too. Including today's briefing. Yes. So moving on then to 5.5, at page 53, there is a departmental response to the Finance Committee regarding the interaction between the protocol and the UK Internal Markets Act. The Finance Committee wrote to the department seeking answers to a number of scrutiny questions raised in a paper from Assembly Research, and those answers are contained within this paper, and a lot of them are its CEO's responsibility. Um, <laughs> so that's just to note at this stage. So moving on then to pay or to 5.6 at page 60 of your pack, there's correspondence from the ERA committee highlighting that they have agreed to write to Enerchem Solutions to seek more information on the DCAF proposal, and I think there's further correspondence sure. from Enerchem, so we'll get to that in a sec. So that's just to note for now. And then 5.7 at page 61, there is a response from TEO to the committee's queries from February regarding budget requirements for skills. So this one's a little bit out of date. The final budget for 2021-22 was agreed by the executive and a further um, 275.8 million has been provided by the executive to DFE to fund Economic Recovery Action Plan. The response states it's a matter for the Economy Minister to use the funding allocated by the executive to meet DFE's departmental priorities and pressures. So obviously things have moved on since then. Um, 5.8 then at page 62, there is a response from TEO regarding drive-in cinemas. And again, it's a little bit out of date um, because outdoor cinemas have reopened. So 
that's just to note as well. I was caught up with that one, Chair. Um, at page 63 of our pack, then there's correspondence from the Department for Bez to Lord Jay, who is Chair of the Protocol Subcommittee, regarding questions asked in relation to the implications of the application of regulations um, under the Protocol to the North. So, um, are members content that we would forward to the Executive Office Committee and the EU Affairs Clerk for their information? Thank you. Um, so moving on then, page 69 of your pack, there is a copy of a departmental press release outlining the Department's NI Domestic Aviation Kickstart Scheme. The Minister announced £4.5 to support air connectivity between the North and Britain. So, um, Peter, you circulated this last week, so that's just to note. Chair, just worth probably flagging up, um, this can be part of the conversation we have with the aerospace representatives when we meet them... Next week. Next week. Next week already, yes. Um, and and it, it, it just, it's, it's that 4.5 million, and it's a case of... Um, focused on the, the airports for connectivity, but it, it's how it affects the wider sector. So... Chair, it just occurred to me it might be worth getting more detail from the department on how that money is likely to be spent. Yeah. If members yeah. are content. Yes, happy to do that. Chair, it might, might also be useful just, yeah, the, the, obviously we don't know, therefore people are speculating, but at the travel protest here last week, a number of the travel agents raised with me the issue of just that fund and to what extent it would benefit passengers because. I know currently we're in a situation where, for example, the uh, UK Northern Ireland routes have been secured for the short term between predominantly Belfast City and regional airports, but the cost of flights is substantially higher than that to which it was prior to the pandemic, and therefore a part of the question I was being asked was, is it, where does the passenger sit in all of this? Not in the plane at £500 return to Southampton. Perhaps it's a question, is there any conditions attached to? Yeah, we, we check that out, Chair. The route development. Okay, thanks, Gordon. I was going to call you apologies, Stuart. <laughs> um, moving on to page 72 of our pack, a copy of the Hansard of the concurrent meeting on the 16th of June on COVID-19 recovery with the interim head of civil servants. So that's just to note. Then page 11 of table papers, there is a copy of a departmental response to the committee in relation to buffet and carvery services in hospitality venues. And again, this one has already been resolved. So that's just to note. Um, page 13 of table papers, there is an overview of DFE's 2020-21 provisional outturn position and a summary of the outcome of June monitoring approved by the executive <coughs> on the 24th of June. So just to highlight... Um, DFE non-ring fence resource Dell bid of 0.9 million to meet the first cost of two global events was met in full on only 4.5 million of the 10.9 million ring fenced resource Dell bid to meet depreciation and impairment pressures in further education colleges was met. A bid for the remaining 6.4 million will be resubmitted in future monitoring rounds um, in October. And a number of additional previously agreed allocations were also made, including 12.2 million for protocol work and 42.3 million for project stratums. Uh, or project stratum, excuse me. So that's just to note at this point, unless members have any points to raise. 
future. So 5.14 then, page 15 of table papers. There is a copy of correspondence from the Clerk of the Public Accounts Committee to all clerks listing the NI Audit Office reports which it will retain primacy over and which will be released. So the PAC reserves primacy over the investment in broadband report. It also states it is too early to state whether an inquiry will proceed in relation to Project Stratum. Um, so the PAC has now asserted its primacy uh, regarding Project Stratum, therefore the committee must respect that. So that's just to note at this point. Chair, we do expect that to go ahead. Yeah. I've, I've had subsequent discussion with the PAC clerk and obviously Project Stratum is such a big spend um, that they're likely to look at that. Um, uh, not a time scale necessarily that they can put in it yet, but probably autumn, winter. Okay. Thanks, Peter. So moving on, 5.15 then, at page 18 of table papers, a copy of a written statement from the Finance Minister on the 24th of June on the 2020-21 Provisional Outturn Exercise and the Executive's June Monitoring Exercise. So that has already been dealt with. 5.16 then at page 46 of table papers, there's a copy of correspondence from the NI Affairs Committee to the Economy Minister regarding its inquiry into the protocol and the responsibilities which DFE will have in terms of alignment with EU legislation. The NI Affairs Committee is seeking further information from DFE on where various responsibilities will sit in terms of monitoring alignment with EU law. The Minister's response then is at page 48 of table papers. Um, so if members are content that we will ask the department to ensure the committee is copied into any correspondence with the NI Affairs Committee in future as a courtesy, if members are happy with that. Chair, fortunately, Chair. they publish, so that's how we've got it. Um, but it would be nice if, if we got it as a courtesy. Oh, okay, thanks, Peter. Chair, um, can I just come in here um, in, in relation to, to uh, the Northern Ireland Protocol? Uh, I noted and, and watched with interest um, the presentation and the briefing by um, uh, the Vice President of the uh, Marcus Sethovich on Monday, on Monday um, afternoon, uh, and he spoke uh, in depth several times regarding um, the EU Commission's support for an investment conference here in uh, Northern Ireland in order for us uh, and to work with Invest NI in order for us to uh, sell globally and within the EU more unique opportunity. Um, I wonder, can we progress this with Invest NI uh, and with the Minister? Because I think that this is an opportunity that we can't um, overlook uh, and it's very incumbent upon um, the Department for Economy to, to progress um, this uh, conference opportunity and to work with the EU and the EU Commission um, in order to ensure that we put our best foot forward and save the opportunity and we don't want to waste any time in doing so. So I think it's uh, that we as a department or we as a committee should be uh, progressing that as soon as possible. And so Peter, we can write to the Executive Office I assume? Because of the Invest NI involvement, they, they would be heavily involved in that. And I can recall from previous times um, that these kinds of conferences are very much economy or, or previously would have been daddy. Um, that's who will be involved, so it might be a lot faster right. to go to direct to the department and ask what they've picked up on from this and what exactly is in hand. Okay, thank you. Um, other than that, it was quite an interesting response. 
So yes, it would be useful to be copied in the future correspondence. <laughs> they said hmm. they publish pretty quite, pretty quickly, but just faster would be better. So moving on then to 5.17 at page 53 of table papers, there's a copy of correspondence from Enerchem that I referred to previously regarding their ongoing efforts to secure uh, support for the proposal. So um, Peter, do you want to speak to that? So what what has basically happened is they, they forwarded on a further slide that would attach to their original presentation that shows they now have interest from Hitachi. Uh, and it, it sets out their, <clears throat> bearing in mind, we're, we're still sort of dealing technically with commercial and confidence. I don't want to go into too much detail with it, but it's the reach that Hitachi has and what they can bring to the equation. So where I think we are now is, members will have seen the response from the ERA minister. So the ERA minister wants to meet with the economy minister and Enerchem, um, because while ERA doesn't have funding for this kind of study, they're very interested in progressing because obviously it has a huge impact on, on what can potentially be done around climate change and decarbonisation and so on. So that's kind of where we are. DFE, Stroke Invest, would be the ones to fund something like that. Um, so we're, we're kind of just waiting for that meeting to happen. Um, I checked with the department and their response to us is in process. So theoretically, it should all work towards that meeting, and where can be you know what, what can be taken from that, and getting that in, impartial feasibility study done, so that the technology can be tested and proven. Um, but I know Enerchem have um, had direct contact with the minister prior to his appointment, so he, he's well aware of, of you know what they're talking about and locations and process etc. So fingers crossed that will all work out. Okay, so we'll note for now. Note for now, thank you. Um, so moving on then to item number six, which is the parental bereavement leave and pay bill. So there are no papers for this item. It's just an update on the progress of the bill. The committee's consultation and survey was launched last week. The committee will also be writing to specific stakeholders and interested parties to make them aware of the consultation. And I assume Peter, if people have any that they want to write to they should make yourself aware absolutely yeah we, we've pushed it out um with with comms over uh, as much social media as we can we've done our um three main newspapers the, the telegraph uh, belfast telegraph i should say um the irish news and the newsletter that's all been done last week so that's all the normal process so what we're doing now is trying to push into other people's networks so um, engagement and outreach here have a, a community sector network that we can push that into and also our business networks that they have as well. So it's really just trying to throw the net as wide as possible to get as much input as we can. The survey is very user friendly and it allows for specific comments at key points so that we can run reports off it. Uh, a lot of it, the questions are around if you like feeling surveys, so it's it's the rating from uh, strongly agree to strongly disagree, that gives us a, a good reading on how they're responding to particular aspects of the bill as drafted. Um, to, for example, you know if, if clause one has a ninety percent agree and strongly agree, then we, we know that there's there's high support for that, etc. So we're just looking to push that out further. And if there's any particular specific stakeholders members want us to target then we can do that if we haven't already. Okay. Um, and also just to highlight, Reyes were due to brief us on the 7th of July, but yeah. that has now been postponed until September because they are waiting responses 
on certain aspects of the bill from HMRC and the bill's office will be providing information regarding the handling of the bill in a closed session later on. Um, I was going to say this morning, but it will likely be afternoon. So that's just to note at this stage. So um, then moving on to item number seven, it's the SL1, the Education Student Fees Amounts Loan Repayment and Support Etc. Amendment Regulations NI 2021. There is a clerk's memo at page 89 of our PACs and then the, the SL1 as a page 90 of our PAC. So the statutory rule will provide for the annual increases using the inflationary forecast of 2.3% for the academic year 2022 to 2023, provided by Treasury to the prescribed basic and higher amounts which higher education institutions here may charge to students who are ordinarily resident in the North and accepted others. It will retrospectively put into legislation a policy agreed for 2021 and for the spring term and continued for the summer term to allow students who were living away from home but moved to their parents' home as a result of public health guidance and continued to incur their accommodation costs to continue to receive the higher London or outside of London rates for, of loan for living. So this rule is subject to negative resolution procedure and the anticipated date that the rule will come into operation is the 1st of September 2021. So this is the committee's opportunity to consider the policy set out in the SL1 as it's not possible to amend once the rule has been made and laid in the Assembly Business Office. So are members happy enough with that? Peter, I'm not sure that it refers and I was just checking again to part-time fees. Um, Sorry, repeat again. Two part-time. 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 Part part I beg your pardon. And maybe it doesn't apply to part-time fees. It, yeah. Um, Inside the scope. Yeah. It's it's it also talks about um, variable. Some part-time falls under variable because of the way the courses are structured. Structured. Um, Just in relation to the issues that were raised with us around before, the part-time yeah, fees. Yeah. That's why I was asking. Let's let's get some clarification on that. Share that. That would be useful to have and we, we have that little bit of time anyway okay so our members happy enough do we have to agree the policy direction or do no. we wait till we back yeah, yeah okay thank you so moving on then to item number eight which is correspondence at 8.1 at page 96 of our packs there's a copy of the department's economic commentary for summer 2021 the commentary reflects on a number of local economic indicators including highlighting that 90,000 workers here remained on furlough as of the end of April 2021. So that is just for, for members to know this is a new thing. They've made it a lot glossier. It didn't used to be this, um, what do you call that, um, infographics. It didn't used to have the same sort of infographics. So it, it's much more user-friendly. <clears throat> I used to have to plow through a lot of prose for this, but now that it's got these kind of little pictures, it's just so much easier to get information out of. Just, just a question, Chair. It says summer 20, 2021. How often is that updated, Peter, Stroke Chair? The, Chair, we, we expect a new one quarterly. Okay. Um, the, there's commentary on a monthly basis, but this level okay. is quarterly. Okay, thank you. I mean, following on from Keith's point in relation to that, because obviously there's an assessment of where furlough is at the end of April, and I appreciate they're not going to produce a new document every, yeah. every month in that regard, but I wonder just if... If they do have any figures, which then give us a they will they do, do share. They, they get published on a monthly basis, yeah, but it's for it's like delayed. So yeah. in June we'll get what's it? So we've had April's. We should have 
We should May's have May's. In July. So May's okay. will be available. Okay. And then, as Chair says, when we get into July, June's will be available. Yeah. So it's, it's like a month, month behind. Yeah. But we can get... They do. Yeah. We can get an update. The, the May update figures will be there. We can probably get those actually ourselves. But we'll, we'll circulate that to members. Um, okay, thank you. So moving on then, 8.2, page 111, correspondence from the Finance Committee regarding the financial reporting departments and public bodies bill. So that bill allows the department to issue directions on the way departments prepare supply estimates in order to include the spending of designated non-departmental public bodies. The bill also amends existing legislation whereby the Department of Finance issues guidance on the preparation of departmental resource accounts in order to include information relating to designated NDPBs. So the bill is described as being designed to provide greater transparency and understanding of the budget process by improving alignment between the supply estimates and departmental resource accounts. The Finance Committee agree, agreed to invite all statutory committees and the Public Accounts Committee and Audit Committee to consider the relevant clauses of the bill and propose amendments where appropriate. So the deadline for that is 12 noon on Friday the 3rd of September. So do members have any views or do they want to come back to that? Chair, what, what I would say is this has been coming for... A very long time. The, the, the discussions uh, around making the budget process simpler have, have certainly been ongoing since I started here nearly 13 years ago, and I'm sure members who have even longer memories will, will know that this has been going on for the last 20 years. Um, so th this has now reached a point where some of the reform will make the process clearer. It will also make public scrutiny of NDPB budgeting clearer. Um, which I'm assuming is generally um, something that, that would be supported. For the committee to get into the nitty-gritty, it's, it's really not um, something we can do without going out and doing stakeholders, consultation and so on. It's not our legislation. I would be wary of overdoing that when we have our own legislation um, to focus on. Um, so if members were content, the suggestion I would make is that the committee writes to the Finance Committee indicating that it's broadly content with what's in the bill, but that the caveat is that we have not had the resource or space to do our own separate consultation. Yeah. We will effectively trust the Finance Committee to do that themselves. Yeah. Members happy with that? Great. Thank you. Moving on, then, 8.3 at page 127, there's correspondence from the EU Affairs Manager regarding an Institute for Government report on the UK internal market. So the report considers what is meant by the internal market and the systems currently in place to manage intra-UK trade, such as the Internal Market Act, Common Frameworks and the Protocol, and how all of these intersect. So that's just for members to note, and I'm sure we can come back to any specifics. Chair, it, it's a fascinating piece of analysis. Um, I think I would probably have liked some more... You should get out more <laughs> infographics on it because it deals with an incredibly complex subject. The one caveat I would have is that it, it's, 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 it's looking at the issue on a broader scale than, than maybe would be required to really unpick the nitty-gritty of the impact of the protocol. Yeah. Um, so I, I would just issue that kind of caveat that there is more, 
but that this is a really good kind of overarching analysis. Um, if, if members want to read it, uh, I certainly recommend it. Thanks, Peter. Well, we are coming up with some recess, so we'll, <laughs> be, we'll be books on the beach. It offers you plenty of time for that. 8.4 then, at page 184 of your pack, there's a copy of a document outlining the work of the Audit Office specific to the Department for the Economy. It's a useful reference in terms of a summary of all recent financial audits. So a copy of the ANI Audit Office Corporate Plan 2021 to 2024 is also provided at page 197. So that mm -hmm. is for members to note at this stage. Mm -hmm. 8.5 then at page 221 there is a copy of the 43rd report of the examiner of statutory rules so again that's for members to note nope. and then at page 56 of table papers there is a copy of a joint letter from the committee on the administration of justice and a number of legal and cross-border organizations to all executive ministers regarding the eu settlement scheme and the rights of eu citizens and their families and evidence that some are facing discrimination. Um, the committee has previously written to the economy minister, to the executive and to British government ministers on these issues. So if members are competent, we will um, ask the department to copy the committee into its response to CAJ. Read. Thank you, Chair. Um, so moving on then, at page 58 of our pack, or sorry, of our table papers, there's a copy of the latest ASNI investing activity report, so that is for members to note. And then moving on, item number nine is any other business and none has been indicated to the committee office? No, nope, not that we're aware of, Chair. Okay. So the date, time and place of our next meeting is next Wednesday in room 30. So we also have a number of informal engagements because we really have nothing more to do as people than <laughs> informal <laughs> engagements. So um, there is a discussion with stakeholders on the protocol via Teams next Wednesday at 1.30 after the main committee meeting. There is an informal meeting with InvestNI and representatives of the aerospace industry at 10.30 a.m. on next Thursday. By a teams and then there's a virtual tour of the Dairy Council next Thursday afternoon at 1.30 along with the Error Committee. So further details will, and an invite will issue to all of those. And we already have links for the protocol one yes. and the um, aerospace one. So um, we're trying to get as much as possible in before summer recess. Yeah, um, and, and there was other things that we, we could have tried to cram, Chair, but thought that would just be pushing it too far. Um, I appreciate that some of those are going to be really difficult for some members who have more other than one committees. committee on a Tuesday, or sorry, a Wednesday, and then those who have committee mm. on Thursday as well. Don't worry about it. Most committees are finished today, this, this week. So it was just us, Stuart. We, oh, no, statutory <laughs> committees are still committee going on. Like, honestly, they are. Yeah, I mean, I don't certainly justice is going on next Agriculture is definitely, I know that they're definitely meeting. Um, I think uh, others are too. I think from, from emails I saw going, everybody has, has tipped into the, what are we calling it euphemistically, the, the special extra week, I think that's what we decided on. So yes, um, obviously next week we have the minister um, who, who had indicated his preference to do a briefing rather than meet informally. Um, and we've had some correspondence about the issues that are most likely to be uh, relevant, what's current and, and what members have raised most recently. Um, so we've got an hour and a half 
11.30 to 1 was, was the window in, in his diary. So we also have, um, we also have an, a closed session with officials uh, around the High Street Stimulus uh, and then whatever else um, and pieces. But we, we may have a small hiatus before we have the minister, depending okay. on how quickly we cover the other stuff. Okay. All very useful stuff. So that's us for now? No. Well, yes. Sorry, yes, Chair. Yes. We're going into closed session. Um, <laughs>